Hello everyone, my name is Reese Lindmark and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late stage capitalism and we want to transition to something but we don't really know what's next. So on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our root forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I chat with Benjamin Bratton, who is an interdisciplinary academic at the forefront of how technology is changing society. And he wrote this brilliant book called The Stack and has continued to write good ideas around how COVID is shaping society. And today... The main thing that we chat about is how technology is ahead of our concepts and models of us. (laughs) The technology has changed us so much that we don't have the correct models to understand what's happening. And we dive deeply into that and his work with the stack and his work, you know, with this institute in Moscow and also this ideas with COVID and surveillance. But that's the crucial idea here is how, you know, thinking about this as the switch to the information age and the creation of new concepts that we can use to model and understand ourselves. That is the the function of today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Goodbye. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm speaking with Benjamin Bratton. Benjamin is really this multidisciplinary type whose work spans philosophy and art and design and computer science. And he does that as a, both a professor of visual arts and the director for the Center of Design and Geopolitics at the University of California, San Diego. And he's also the director of this really interesting program, uh, the program director of this thing called the Terraforming Think Tank at the Strelka Institute in Moscow. And he's very famous for writing this book called The Stack. Uh, and it's this book that outlines a new geopolitical theory for this age that we're in of global computation. And I'm excited to dive in with Ben on all these topics. So Ben, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to explore. So today we're going to chat about, you know, how you understand the world and how that started with the stack, and then switching over to your work at Terraforming these days with Stroka Institute, and then kind of applying that to some of you had this great essay um, called "18 Lessons of Quarantine Urbanism" about COVID. But before we dive into that, I want to stay kind of high level for a second and help our readers, kind of under our listeners, understand how you view the world. I think you're so interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary and it's really interesting, but how, like, what's your goal as you go through the world and like, how do you find collaborators and info and stuff? Tell us a little bit about that. Huh. Um, 
Well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a social theorist. I'm, you know, a really a writer at the end of the day. Um, but my own background has been, um, extremely interdisciplinary, as you mentioned, but also kind of interinstitutional, um, you know, between working between industry, uh, and, 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 and academia. Um, I, I think I was someone, you know, of, of a generation who saw really early on, um, the ways in which, uh, what I call planetary scale computation was transforming the world, uh, it, or political systems, economic systems, uh, cultural systems, and indeed, um, uh, Philosophical systems in ways that um, were not uh, were not being properly accounted for, um, and so just autobiographically for me that kind of that led to a, a lot of interest in architecture, but in a kind of strange way, and that architecture provided a uh, sophisticated language of systems and spaces and structures um, that we could use to sort of analyze, but also think about composing. And, and, and producing. And, and, and my interest in that sort of regard was thinking of, I guess, in this sense, is thinking about planetary scale computation um, through this sort of lens of, 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 of architecture, um, which uh, it led to the development of the, of this, of the, the, the book, The Stack on Software and Sovereignty, and the, the thesis of the stack as a way of thinking about planetary scale computation as what I call an accidental, uh, accidental megastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's, and I want to actually hone in for a second on that architecture piece, which I think is really interesting. I used to work at the mm-hmm. MIT Media Lab, which was part yeah. of the architecture school at, at MIT. It's like, and there's also, you know, pattern languages are is a it's a it's an exciting book and an exciting way of thinking. Sure, Chris so tell me more about yeah. exactly exactly. Tell me more about why you think architecture is a home for some of the like weird interdisciplinary thinker types? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think because it's, it's, it, because it's, first of all, because it's a design discipline uh, and that it, it is been set up in such a way, particularly within architecture uh, academia. I mean, I think we want to make a distinction here is that in, in this regard in which um uh, it's able to take in uh, ideas and discourses uh, really from everywhere, from philosophy, humanities, uh, hard sciences, uh, and kind of actively misuse them and misinterpret them in really in interesting kinds of ways. Uh, and to put them to work, uh, to not just be uh, tools of analysis or tools of taking the world apart and breaking it up into smaller and smaller little pieces, um, but it's a place in which a lot of those little pieces can be brought back together and reassembled into bigger ideas that you can leverage and use to put one brick on top of another and, and, and make something. Um, and I think in, in certain respects, my, my, you know, my work is probably increasingly philosophical in certain respects. But my, my position in that is that as opposed to an era where philosophy was coming up with concepts and ideas and then design and engineering was making things that kind of looked like those ideas or resembled these right now i think in many ways the the technology is ahead of uh, ahead of our concepts ahead of the ideas that we have at hand to uh to steer them uh and to compose them deliberately uh and to really understand what's at stake at a, at a more fundamental at a more fundamental level um, and so, for someone like me, um, you know, g- you know, getting in and getting my hands dirty uh, with with the, the 
nuts and bolts of it all um, is a way in which to kind of is a way in which to steer the uh, to steer the the theoretical uh, and, and philosophical project as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that what I'm hearing is that there's yeah, this like architecture as a thing is not just about analysis, which is so much of what, um, you know, scientific and other fields are and just like the also the Western tradition of breaking things down into component parts. And, but architecture yeah. also had this idea of ah, bringing things back together in a holistic sense and seeing, right. you know, from a systemic lens, or whatever, how it combines together. And I think so that makes sense to me. The other thing that makes sense, what I'm hearing you say is that there's a, you know, traditionally, perhaps philosophy was uh, pre was like pre technology, um, and now though technology is ahead of the concepts we have to understand it. And maybe this was similar right. in like the industrial revolution or something like that, where it's like, oh God, what is this new thing yep. that's occurring? And people had to be like, that's right. the philosoph the philosophers had to understand it. So tell me more. So I think yeah, and we had and there was a huge and there was a huge revolution in philosophical thinking at that at that point in time. Everything from from positivism to Marxism, you know, emerges in many ways in relationship to. Um, the transformations in the world that are happening through tech, through technical systems, um, you know, and I, I would argue that even you know you know going back to Copernica and the Copernican turn, you know, it, it, here is this is an instance in which we do, we have a, the way I put it is what, what in sort of in the definition of a Copernican turn in this way is we have technologies that we use based on models of the world. So we have a model of how the world works. We produce technologies that allow us to act upon the world in accordance with the logic of that model. But sometimes those technologies reveal that the world doesn't work the way in which our model, way in which we thought it did. It doesn't work in the way in which the model that brought that technology about would have, would have us thinking. We have to then revise the model based on what the technology has disclosed. And I think for my work, there's a kind of different part of the way in which we, we think about technology is that not just something with which we make, um, it is also something with which we think. It's a way of remaking the world and through remaking the world, um, it reveals things about the way the world works that require us to, uh, that require us to, to conceptualize uh, and to form and to formalize. And, and, you know, so and this in many ways is sort of the, the basis of of the theoretical project in which I in which I find myself. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. That it's not, and I think that is where you and I are very aligned. It's like okay, we have we can think of this as like the tech society loop, where it's like technology changes society, society changes technology, and that we have yeah our mindsets. Technology is not just a thing that we make, but it's, yeah, changes are actually our models of the world and how we think of things. When you talk about the Copernican turn, um, was that a, or tell me a little bit more about that specific? Is that like a term that people use? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Kant spoke of the Copernican Revolution, and I and, and sort of formally I this this uh, explained his the, the his his his, uh, his system of system of thinking formalization of system of thinking as in relationship to the Copernican Revolution. So the idea that philosophy has some relationship to Copernicus, and particularly goes back to the beginnings of modern modern philosophy. But more recently, you know, Freud talked about the Copernican trauma. But the, the way in which that we use the term is a bit more specific than all of that. Um, the, I would define a Copernican turn uh, or Copernican trauma as a priceless accomplishment. And I would define it in this sense, both in terms of that technical system, which that technical revelation and disclosure, which I just just went through. But in more generally, a Copernican turn is when we have some model of the way the world works, 
in which we, that is humans, homo sapiens, or a particular subset of those humans more often, imagine themselves to be the center of that system. And the system, the world is sort of, uh, the world has unfolded around it. But usually through some means of technical alienation of our own uh, intuitive understanding of the world, such as a telescope or a microscope or statistics, we realize what is disclosed is we're not the center of that system. We're kind of off to the side. We may be a very interesting and important part of that system, the one part of the system that is capable of sapience, but we're not the center. Our planet is not the center of the solar system. Our sun is not the center of the universe. And these Copernican turns, which in fact show us where we actually are within the big scheme, as I say, are priceless accomplishments. Hmm. Um, I would say that Darwinian biology is a kind of Copernican turn. Uh, neuroscience, the neuroscientific revolution that shows how thinking is not some uh, you know, n- uh, virtual pr- process, but is you know, a function of, 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 of biology, biochemistry itself. AI, I think, will, is, has been and will continue to be as it develops a kind of Copernican turn that shows that our model of our own intelligence, that is how we think that we think, is is not is, is is not only to a certain extent fictitious, but that it's not normative. It is not the normative center of what intelligence is in the world, uh, and that the the more that we understand the way we think in relationship to this broader diversity of, of intelligence, um, the, the, the more the, uh, essentially the sort of the, the better we'll know know ourselves in this regard. So once more, the, the, these Copernican terms are kind of this displacement process over time that are usually technologically mediated, and again. As far as I'm concerned, that's what that's what philosophy is for, um, and that's what the that's what sort of the pursuit of 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 knowing the world is all about. Yeah, yeah, I love. I think that the Copernican turn. I love it as a yeah, and just the move from the you know um, geocentric model to the heliocentric model. That was just like the simplest form of it, and now we've seen it in a, a wide variety of other ways. And just this repeated yep. reminder that we don't matter. You know that you know we're designed to think egotistically or whatever, but really to zoom out to that systemic perspective is powerful. Well, so I, I, I would I, I would qualify just to just to for clarity for your for your listeners, I would qualify that a little bit in that I do think we matter. Um, and, and I just don't think we matter in the way we thought we did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the, uh, it, like I said, you know, we are, for better or worse, you know, the primary sapient species uh, within our, you know, within, you know, within the, 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 the larger neighborhood here. You know, the whole idea of the Anthropocene, of a, of a geologic era that has been that, a, a transfer, a terraforming scale transformation of the planet in the image of the culture of one species, we are incredibly important. Uh, we just, again, don't, in a certain sense, don't recognize the ways in which we are important, partially because we ha- we operate under sort of illusions of where we fit into the larger scheme of things. And so, I think part of the 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 part of the the paradox of this is that through the Copernican turn, we understand that we are in fact. Uh, we are, in fact, in a way that the world does not operate around us in this cosmological sense. Um, the implications of that is that we we actually have a greater responsibility for the subsequent composition of the world um, because we are the medium through which, in, in essence, uh, uh, the world figures itself out. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that. And I like that pushback on um, both the, the paradoxical nature here. And I was going to bring up the example of climate change, which shows that, A, yeah. the things are so much bigger than us. And also, we're obviously affecting the, the Earth system. And so, yeah, keeping that paradox in mind is helpful for listeners. And also, this reminder to listeners that even if, um, you know, there's this nihilistic thought of having that we don't mean very much in the macro universal sense that this individual, uh, there's this great video from Kurgazat called egoistic uh, nihilism, which is about how, yeah, we can actually just, even though things might be nihilistic, like living a fun life is still good. So um, trying to balance those two. So I do want to um, transition now though, Ben, to this idea of, you know, getting into some of the specifics for, you know, we know that the Industrial yeah. Revolution had the rise of positivism and Marxism, all these things. And now we're seeing, you know, this this digital revolution and how, for mm-hmm. you, what are some of the specifics in thinking about the stack and your work with terraforming and the Stroka Institute? How are you sure. understanding the world? Well, let me maybe explain, uh, sort of rehearse a little bit the the, the thesis of the book might be Great. a, a entry point this way. So, and, you know, it's a rather big book. It's 500 pages or so. There's single single diagram, I guess, structure. So you could say it's sort of one one diagram with a 500-page caption uh, is the structure of this. And the book on software, in the subtitle of Software and Sovereignty, um, it, it speaks to this phenomenon of what I've called planetary scale computation. And so, first of all, instead of thinking of computation as in, in, in a very abstract sense, in the way in which theory of computation uh, it, it, we, we, we we teach in computer science departments, or instead of thinking of computation as a kind of object in the world, like that's a computer, but that other thing is not a computer. Instead, what we're looking at is to understand computation as a planetary scale infrastructural phenomenon, uh, which includes the types of things we would normally think of as the internet, but it also inclu- but includes much more besides. It's it's it is a it, it's an identification of. It, it, this construction again of what I call the sort of accidental megastructure of planetary scale computation that includes terrestrial, oceanic, urban uh, uh, technologies, sensor mechanisms, all the rest of this. And the argument that the book makes is essentially twofold. One is that planetary scale computation uh, both distorts and deforms traditional. Westphalian models of political geography. And by Westphalian, I mean like the the bounded secular, geographically, territorially bounded secular nation state and produces new territories in its, <clears throat> in its own image. And so there, we're already in the process by which the maps are being redrawn in relationship to the affordances of this new infrastructure. And second, it argues that instead of thinking about all of the different kinds of species or genres of planetary scale computation, smart grids, cloud computing, smart cities, internet of things, AI, uh, augmented reality, as a bunch of different sort of you know species all spinning out on their own, we can instead actually think about them fitting together into in, in a way that is not unlike network architecture stack of OSI is a you know OSI or TCP is an example in which there are there are layers of this composite that are de, that are defined by their particular functions. It's possible, in other words, to think about planetary scale computation as a kind of model, as, as at least at the, in the model sense, as a kind of totality. 
And when we think of it as a totality, it allows us to understand patterns and structures within the whole that might have been obscure if we were focusing on on too myopically on particular uh, on particular moments or in particular places. And like any kind of model, uh, uh, when you have that sort of to- uh, a totality, it also allows you to recursively act back upon the system. And so a lot of what the, the book is, is both a kind of an explication of how we got here, what the history of the system is, what the history of the system is in relationship to the history of political geography itself, going back to the early modern era, a description of how these six layers work. And for the book, the model is that there's an earth layer, a cloud layer, a city layer, address layer, interface layer, and user layer where we sit. And so the book is, it lays out describing the reality of each of these layers. And then the, 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 the third part is a proposition for what may be to come because part of the way in which stack systems work, and I mean like hardware, software stacks, is they're designed to be replaced. That the way in which any, whatever occupies functionally um, at, at any one particular layer a layer is defined by the function of the layer, not by the you know the qualities of, what, of whatever occupies it. That it's it's modular. It's designed that like that layer three can be replaced by something else, and the whole system still works. Layer two and layer six can be replaced, and the whole system still works. And so, the stack that we have, in other words, is not the stack we will have in the future. The stack to come the design of the stack to come, the composition of the stack to come, the conceptualization of the stack to come is the project. It's the design project. It's the political project. It's the economic project. It's the, politi- it's the philosophical project um, that, we, that we have in front of us for the coming decades. Yeah. So I just want to um, kind of repeat some of that back for our listeners and reflectively listen. I, I mean, I love that, that explanation. I think, A, the first thing you noted is this yeah, this idea of planetary scale computation, which is this accidental megastructure. And I love thinking of this as, you know, kind of, we've completely changed how um, information is propagated in the world. And it used to take a lot more time to do that. And now that we have this crazy big megastructure, um, it is, it, it completely changes our, like, nation state systems. And so thinking about that, it's like we have the the industrial revolution, we can think of our nation states as we know them today, the Westphalian geography, as a part of and a result of and co-evolved with um, the industrial revolution. And now, as you note, once we have, you know, TikTok, you know, but also the internet and all these important things, it the structures, the geographical structures that we have today, the Westphalian politics, are going to change. Um, and we're already seeing yeah. that breakdown yeah. with in a variety, a wide variety of ways. So totally agree with that. Right. Also, okay. but, 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 but let me then sort of, let me sort of anticipate where we might go with this is, is that because you mentioned TikTok, which, you know, we're all, we're <laughs> all following the headlines every morning about all the different kinds of ways in which it seems the opposite is happening. It seems that, wait a minute, it's not that states are going away. It's that states are actually, you know, fortifying themselves through the nationalization of and at the exclusive nationalization of of technologies, apps that aren't available in China or only available in the U.S. or vice versa, and GDPR, Europe becoming this kind of Galapagos data jurisdiction. The important point I want to sort of emphasize, and because part is that this is one of the ways in which there's I think a bit of bit of perhaps I, I should in terms of an interpretation of the the book is that the argument is not is that 
the cloud layer and cloud platforms in general are taking on more and more functions, traditional functions of the modern nation state, legal identity, currency, cartography, uh, and so on. But, but at the same time, states are taking on more and more of the technical capacities of cloud platforms. So as cloud platforms, in essence, evolve towards something that in which they function as kind of uh, as kind of state scale stateless actors, or at least have the capacity to do so, at the same time, states are evolving, as I say, into state platform. The cloud allows states to see things, to process things, to structure knowledge about the world and about their populations that were impossible to do before. And so the phenomenon that I identify with this is called hemispherical stacks that, for example, the split between the uh, the Western... So it's not like there's one stack that operates the entire world, but rather you can imagine it kind of it's a kind of mitosis by which was the stack genera is splitting into uh, a chi- essentially a, China, a Chinese-centric stack, an American-centric stack. Europe is a little bit different. Russia has its own kind of structure here as well. And that, and this is the important point, the split towards a multipolar geopolitics, a multipolar hemispherical geopolitics, and the split of the, the and the split of the stacks towards these multipolar, sometimes technically exclusive and antagonistic relationships are the same phenomenon. It's yeah. not that the politics is causing the technology to split or the technology is causing the geopolitics, but they are in fact the same thing. That our geopolitics and our geotechnologies are so bound together that we can't really think of one without the other, and that's where what I mean where. Uh, when I say that the, that it is producing new geographies in its own image. Yeah, I like that. I think it makes me think of two things. A, this just concept of um, new institutional economics and institutional co-evolution where we saw um, the rise of, and there have been some articles about this around like, okay, Wikipedia as a new kind of institution, like a new open source institution is really interesting. And we are now seeing just institutional co-evolution in general, which is like, yeah, nation states are quote unquote, battling with and co-evolving with these tech platforms. And it's not just a pure, it's not just like tech platforms versus the state. As you note, it's like right. that the state is kind of sucking in parts of traditional platforms into them, maybe like surveillance authoritarianism kind of stuff. And then also the, or on the vice versa, something like in Taiwan, these like beautiful, like, you know, civil society stuff. And you can see the vice versa, which is platforms kind of sucking um, things that the state normally did, aka identity and stuff like that, into them. And so there's this battle right. between the states and the platforms here, uh, which is going to be fascinating as it <laughs> evolves. Yep. The other thing I wanted to note here was, yeah, I mean, just thinking about, yeah, the geopolitics and the tech side, I think that there's just like, I mean, and again, that we can make these patterns with any kind of technologies in the past, but thinking about like nuclear security and like the Cold War and like that was... Obviously, um, nukes co-evolved with the USSR versus the United States. And so I'll just we're going to see more and more of that going forward. I want to ask a specific question here, though, which is, and I really like what you said about these protocol layers. Yeah, I mean, the arms, the arms race connotations of this. Yeah, yes, for sure. I mean, just to underscore your point is that um, as part of the geopolitics of this is that, you know, the history of technology's relationship to um, uh, to military strategy is so tightly bound, you know, we have no reason to think that would that would ever be that would ever be otherwise. And um, as you know, as we as as the question of the planetarity moves not just from the terrestrial but up into 
up into space, uh, I don't see any reason why that that dynamic wouldn't continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the arms race is uh, it was happening with respect to attention on the internet, aka Facebook and YouTube battling for the same uh, eyeballs, and it is also happening with respect to the nation state surveillance authoritarianism vibe as well. Um, one thing that I love about the layers here in the stack is. There's the, you know, as you noted, there's kind of the micro layer at the bottom, the kind of user layer. Um, and then it goes to the interface layer, address, city, cloud, and then earth. And I think one that is really interesting is this like user kind of interface layer. Um, tell me how you think about yeah. that interface or that API between us as humans and and the stack above us. Uh, sure. So just, just the way in which the model is tr- just, it's a it, minor point, but the way in which the model is drawn, I usually have the, the, the earth layer at the bottom and the user Sorry, layer yeah. at the top because no, it's Thank fine. You. Because, I, and part of the argument there is also just, just to, to conceptually make clear that this whole system is dependent upon the foundation of the energy that drives this whole thing. That the, we tend to have, we've learned from kind of 90s discourse that the digital was virtual as the analog was what was the analog was real computation is a deeply physical phenomenon it is and the planet the stack is a hungry hungry infrastructure its energy appetite its mineral appetite is enormous and we can't think of it as somehow virtual or immaterial it's a foundational structure so and that was part of the logic of this now to your question with the user, with the user in the interface, which is, I think you're right, it's a very it's a sort of a fascinating moment of contact here. So first of all, I should say that the the user, as as we define it, is a position. It's a position within a system, and and it's a position that within the stack could be occupied by a person, as you say, but it could also be occupied by uh, an AI. It could be occupied by a robot. It could be occupied by a human and an AI working together. It could be occupied by a human AI and two robots working together. It's a, it's a position that and you or I step into or out of many times over the course of the day. But um, the fact that we've developed this infrastructure that works just as well, that as far as the rest of the stack is concerned, a user is whoever or whatever is able to interact with the interface layer in order to in order to uh, uh, you know uh, send and receive command or information up and down the rest of the stack, so that could be an animal, vegetable, or mineral. It's it's agnostic in this regard. And in terms of the way, in terms of the the implications of that for the future of AI and automation, more generally, there's obviously much to say. Now, the interface layer, as we define it, is is in essence the way in which the rest of the stack represents itself to a user so that that user can have some sense of what the possibilities for action are so that it would choose one of these possibilities and act back upon it. And so you just think about the interface on your on your computer screen. The processor in, the, in your computer is capable of doing so many things, but it's too complex. There's too many things it could possibly do. And so the interface produces this kind of diagrammatic fiction, a skeuomorphic diagrammatic fiction of certain things that you might want to do with it and presents us with pictures that we take to resemble the actions we would like to take. So a, a trash can involves file deletion or, and so forth. But first of all, in that there's a necessarily a kind of ideological and cognitive reduction of the space of popu- uh, positionalities within that, with, with, within that interface itself. 
and that can introduce this introduces all kinds of interesting complexities in terms of the way in which certain kinds of interfaces actually structure what it is that we understand is possible to do with uh, with the with the system itself and you know the you know my Linux friends and uh, made this point for a very long time. Neil Stevenson, of course, wrote this book about the superiority of the command line. But there's another dynamic here in that the interface allows for th- there's a kind of 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 translatability of the uh, uh, of what planetary scale computation is capable of, where it translates those affordances into something that we the simple Homo sapiens are able to understand in terms of our symbolic reasoning. And this allows more of us to participate in it. And so you have all these kinds of network law effects where the simpler the interface or the more intuitive the interface, the greater the network effects of the, of the engagement there, is, there as well. But as the interface, one of the things that I talk about in the book um, in terms of a sort of area of concern here, let's say, is uh, in relationship to augmented reality in the interface. And you know, AR, I'm very interested in AR. I think it's wonderful. At the same time, uh, I think there's a difference between my suspicion is that there's a difference between the way in which we would uh, cognitively, like neurologically, process interfacial information that is on a screen. We process that as if it's a as, as if it is a kind of artifact uh, rather than a real event in front of us. But when if we're walking around the world and the things that we see in the world are literally subtitled or narrativized or augmented for us in the moment of direct perception, I think it will be harder to, di- to di- make the distinction between um, what, wh- what is an interface and what, and, and what is real. And I think in the long term, the capacities for uh, more manipulative forms of uh, cognitive fundamentalism uh, and, and, and uh, platform lock-in uh, will become, will become e- even greater. But um, much to say on this. So... Yeah, no, I think that that, I think, I mean, a couple pieces there. A, at the start, you talked about how, and I super agree with this, thinking of the stack as kind of a being that is hungry, I think is just a helpful, it's like a front, or one way that I like to view it is this, there's this, you know, frontier of uh, bits out there that we as humans mm. want to explore and develop and exploit. And it's a hungry thing that we're going to keep on, it's like inevitable that we keep doing that. And then thinking about the yeah. specific interaction between that thing and us, this API between the things. Yeah, I love how you talk about how there's a the stack, you know, this a bunch of bits needs to represent itself to us simple simpleton human types um, through you know yeah. the floppy disk and those icons, and you can think of just how you know when you're interacting with the world. This is just a constant reminder to listeners of like, hey, you know, when Twitter went from 140 characters to 280 characters, that changed the interface and it changed the kinds of conversations that we could have on the internet. And so I think thinking about this desire for the simpler interface and the less friction and then like maybe pushing against that or seeing that there's um, other spaces that we can explore there. And then the third piece that you talk about here, which I think is uh, powerful and dangerous is, yeah, how AR is going to combine the symbolic and the real (laughs) in that it is if we walk through the world today we see okay blah 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 um there's a person over there and you know he or she is an african-american or an asian or whatever and or a white person and then but those are your kind of own internal processes happening symbols that you're applying and if you though then imagine that no those symbols that are applying to your mind are put on there by someone else 
and that those things are saying, ah, this is that is a bad person or that is a good person that is going to yeah. be um, ripe for, for for some difficulties. I do want to to um, keep talking about the how the stack. I want to move from the stack right now to kind of your work today with um, the Strelk Institute and the kind of terraforming program that you have. So maybe it would be sure. good to kind of. Um, talk about you know that program and then the kind of goals of that program. Yeah, what yeah. Tell me about that? Sure, no, happy to. Thank you. Um, so the terraforming is the name of a of, of a think tank that I direct at the Strelka Institute in Moscow. I've been the the program director of this at this institute for for four years. Um, it's an independent, uh, independent nonprofit educational uh, institute looking at future of cities more 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 generally. Um, the the it, the the think tank meets for sort of intent a very very intensive residency of five months. Uh, we we just finished the first year of this, and we we are in the process of of of, of looking at applications for the for the for the second year. Um, it's extremely interdisciplinary. Our faculty are drawn from political science, architecture, design, anthropology, philosophy. Um, you know. You know, a lot of the the really interesting research labs within the within the big platforms, um, the the notion of the terraforming that we're working with here, that we're sort of proposing here, is not terraforming of Mars or terraforming of the Moon. It's based like this idea that we that with with the Anthropocene, we have in essence terraformed the Earth, but have done so through this kind of headless, pilotless, basic in, in many ways catastrophic kind of uh, recklessness. The terraforming that we're talking about is the idea that in order to make it's not to make the moon viable for Earth-like life. It's that in order to ensure that Earth remains viable for Earth-like life, the response to anthropogenic climate change is going to have to be equally anthropogenic. We are going, to, whether we want to or not, we are going to have to fundamentally transform how it is that as a population of seven billion primates that we occupy the surface of the planet, that we draw energy from it, that we feed ourselves from it, that we, that we, we house ourselves in it one way or another. It would be a, a, a geoengineering scale initiative that is not just about transforming clouds or, or, or transforming uh, cloud solar radiation or something, but indeed about how it is that we, a more deliberate process by which we compose how it is that we, that we occupy this towards what we call a viable planetarity. Um, and there's a, a number of different sort of, uh, you know, that being said, um, there's a, a few rather more specific ways in which we come at that problem uh, that I think make our program, uh, that make our program uh, unique. Uh, one is, as I've already indicated, that there's a kind of leaning, leaning into the artificiality of this, of understanding that the, that the ecological, that the interrelationship between technical systems and ecological systems is permanent uh, and that the distinctions between them are, are, are themselves largely fictitious. And so that the artificiality of this transformation is something that we, we embrace. Um, second, it's an idea in terms of the geopolitics of this is we're also looking at ways in which, uh, you know, we tend to think of it, we tend to think of these kinds of big scale transformations as first we need to change our way of thinking, then we need to change our politics, and that the politics will then make net, will make available certain kinds of technologies that will have a, a material and direct effect on the problem. We're looking at it. We're allowing for looking at this the other way around by sort of looking at the history of technology in such a way that, in many cases, 
the appearance of, of technologies has transformed the geopolitics in, in its image. And so for us, the relationship between the geotechnologies that we, that we, that we need and the geopolitics that we need, we, we tie these together very, very, very closely. Um, and maybe the third one is in relationship where the stack comes in here is we, we, we recognize that when we're talking about questions like what is the impact that planetary scale computation, what is the positive impact that planetary scale computation could have on, on, the, on that initiative, could have on the, 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 the response to the Anthropocene or, 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 the, or the mitigation of the most catastrophic effects of climate change and the transformation of a geopolitics and a geoeconomics towards a more stable and equitable uh, arrangement. We first realize is that the very idea of climate change, not the not the not the scientific fact of it, but the concept of climate change, quote unquote, is a is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. It is because we have this massive sensing and modeling and calculation and simulation. Uh, infrastructure, we are able to produce this simple statistical pattern that demonstrates that this concept of climate change is possible, which implies to me a few things. One is that one of the things in terms of the sort of the philosophical changes here, one of the philosophical and conceptual changes that planetary scale computation brings with it is a conception of planetarity as such, a conception of the an ability to conceive and model and represent a planet at once in ways that are uh, th- th- in ways that are significant and meaningful and 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 important um, uh, in, in 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 this way. Um, and uh, the other is that uh, it it demands in, in a way in which uh, uh, mechanisms in which it's possible to sort of again to recursively act back upon that uh, and to stru- and to structure our response to this in ways that we. Um, that not only uh, the situation not only allows for, but uh, in, 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 fa- in fact, in fact, demands. Yeah. And so, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, so A, and we'll reemphasize this at the end, but yeah, it's a, it's a program in Moscow that is, um, you've been running for almost five years and that there's a, there's this like residency piece to it as well, this terraforming piece, uh, which has, brings together a bunch of interdisciplinary folks to work on these problems of, you know, terraforming our earth in, you know, a geopolitical, geotechnical image. Um, and I think I really like what you're saying, and I was going to emphasize this earlier, but I think thinking of the way that I kind of reflect what you're saying here is that I like to think of our future as the co-evolution between like nature 1.0, aka the earth, aka this amazing epistemological accomplishment of planetary planetary scale computation. So there's nature 1.0, then there's nature 2.0, aka all the humans, um, the networked human organism. And then there's nature 3.0, which is a, this networked, you know, AI and computation piece. And so those three things kind of co-evolve with each other in a, in a, in a powerful and interesting way. Do you think one question I have about the program is like, I guess, do you want to give me uh, like a specific for how you're thinking that geotechnology affects geopolitics? Sure. So a couple of the things that we were looking at in the first year, we, we did a couple of really interesting, a lot of interesting, interesting research and kind of speculative design and films around, around this, uh, or two themes that speak to this. One is around um, space law. Uh, space law is a 
you know, an increasingly really interesting area of, 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 of legal, legal thought and thinking, um, both because there's so much interest and attention and, and indeed money going into uh, space exploration uh, once again, and so that the questions around this are seemingly coming to the fore. But the way we're looking at it is also thinking about that part of the problem, for example, with um, uh, the issue that we face in terms of climate change models, for example, that we have planetary scale computation that has produced these, these enormously confident models of the, the dynamics of very, very complex systems. We are not able to act upon the implications of those models, that the models is, is merely a representation of a circumstance, but unlike the way, say, a financial, the m models of the market work, where the models of the market actually kind of bend back and structure the market activity in the first place, our models of ecosystems don't have that capacity to do so. And in, in the, what political scientists uh, pointed this, and they call this a problem of global governance, that we have phenomenon that are taking place at one scale, but our governing systems that are able to uh, that would be able to act upon them are operating at a very different scale, um, and this mismatch causes all kinds of, 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 of noise in the system. Space law is an interesting thing in that it's a body of press. It's a precedent body of work. Um, you know, it's a it's a body of precedence. It's a jurisdictional logic that takes on the adjudication of an entire planet as a whole. Um, it's oftentimes used, as you know, to talk about mineral rights on the moon or Mars or. Uh, who has rights to do what in low Earth orbit, and so forth and so on. But thinking about it, thinking about the again this, the the way in which planetary scale computation, one of the things that it produces, is the capacity and conceptualization of planetary systems as a whole. Thinking about the legal structures, the ways in which the implications of those models could enforce themselves. Um, where space law is one of the areas we're very very interested in here as well. Here is an here is a clear example then of. We have the development of a geotechnological system that produces phenomenon, that produces uh, you know, things that need to be accounted for um, politically, and then demands a transformation or produces or necessitates a transformation in the political institutionality in order to account for the reality. Another one that we looked at in relationship to, to this kind of, as Demick, you asked for, is how is it that the geotechnology can produce the geopolitics? Um, has to do with some of the work we're doing around uh, negative emissions technologies. Uh, um, ne negative emissions technologies, or NET, is just sort of a general term to describe any kinds of technologies that are that are uh, the function of which is to uh, is in essence to absorb atmospheric carbon and CO two uh, uh, in a way that at, at a scale that is uh, climate significant. Um, there's a, a recent, several recent IPCC special reports that indicate that even the mo even the, the least ambitious of the 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 the, the warming targets um, are unlikely to be realized only with cuts to new carbon emissions. That there is going to have to be at the same time also a a, a climate significant scale subtraction of already existing carbon and CO two that that is. That is it, that is in the atmosphere. You know, lot, there are an, any number of technologies that can demonstrate this in the lab, but uh, understanding how to do this uh, at, at, at the at, a, at the scale that is needed is most more a political and, econ and a political and economic problem. Um, and so, one of the one of the projects that we did called, called "To Bury the Sky" was looking at the specific potential of the of the of Siberia, particularly the uh, 
basalt, uh, subterranean basalt uh, in, 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 in Siberia as a, as a likely area in which uh, you could actually do this kind of, you could do this carbon sequestration uh, at, at an enormous scale. Uh, and that's really what, what, what is necessary, uh, what, what is necessary to do that. Um, and so this research not only sort of worked out ways in which you could power this, ways in which you could, you could, you could structure this as well, but also quite a bit of work on the economics and the politics of the, and the politics of the whole thing. Great. Got it. Yeah. I think those are two good examples. A, that, you know, space law, I mean, obviously back, you know, a 10,000 years ago, we weren't thinking too much about space law, but now that we can actually go into space and now it's a frontier and you say, ah, who should get which pieces of land? Where should you land? Quote unquote. And yeah, where should you be able to go on the asteroid or with satellite patterns that then leads to that new technology and, you know, macro planetary scale technology then leads to some of these interesting bits of space law and space institutions that we need to create now. And then similarly with the negative... and just just to clarify that, I think part of the implication here is that what what it means is that we think of Earth as in space, right? It's not as though there's Earth where there's one law and over there there's space. Is the space law? The Earth is in space, obviously, and so it is. It is in fact part of this jurisdictional thing and part of that that legal that legal shift of uh, of kind of the way in which our astronomic our understanding of Earth of our planet as an astronomic entity and its own positionality comes to take on something that actually has more political and legal significance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like thinking of, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, just, yeah, that it is actually, we are in physical, we think of physical space, usually not as, you know, space space, but actually we can just extend the map a little bit further. So it includes out there. Um, And then the second one of these negative emissions and how, yeah, we need to do negative emission stuff in order to not get you know, in order to help with climate, the climate crisis and um, how to do this at scale and thinking about um, doing that in Siberia and some of the like, again, some of the like economic and institutional changes that would need to happen if we wanted to really, quote unquote, bury the sky, as you said. So that is yep. all fascinating. And I want to switch to one final um, thought here before we sure. wrap up the show. And this final one is about COVID. Um, it is, we are currently yeah. in a global pandemic, and you wrote this great article called 18 Lessons of Quarantine Urbanism. This was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I think I just mm-hmm. want to do kind of a high level, I'll, I'll share the article with listeners. It's really quite, it has these 18 yeah, lessons, and at least nine of them are great. You know what I mean? <laughs> and seriously, that's a high, that's <laughs> like an amazing, and not, I'm not, that's not a diss, that's like nine of them are really good. And so I just give me your high level view on like how you're viewing COVID itself or, or yeah. how some of these okay. lessons sure. of quarantine urbanism. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, sh- I should also say for your listeners is that is that I'm I'm currently turning this article into a book called The Revenge of the Real, uh, mm-hmm. which will be coming out from Verso next year, uh, which you will be a little bit deeper dive into this as well. Um, the, the, uh, there's there's a few obviously a, a few of the many things I talk about in there as well. I, three that I think that dovetail nicely with with um, um, with, with what we've talked with what we've talked about here um, is that. What, one of the ways in which we, we can view this pandemic, or I think one of the ways in which when we're look, looking towards a post-pandemic politics, that we will be looking back at the pandemic, is as this incredibly strange, uh, but also amazing experiment in comparative governance, in which the virus was the control variable, and different governing systems uh, either d- dealt with it well or dealt with it very, very poorly. And there's clear patterns in terms of what, in terms of the kind of, the kinds of political systems that we 
that, that we may want to uh, we, we may want to uh, encourage or discourage going forward based on the results here. What it's clear that sort of tr- that the tech, the governing systems that were very trusted that were very technocratically competent that already had a robust and inclusive and equitable sensing layer capacity within their within within their medical system generally that that that, that intervened early um, generally did well populist governments did really really poorly and that one of the things that we may anticipate from the from this pandemic is that those wave of populist politics of the last few years um, may not survive this moment whether it's Trump or Boris Johnson or bolsonaro that the idea for and if we define populism in this way as sort of an idea that the way in which that the narr- that the kind of mythological narratives that a particular culture has about the way it works are somehow imagined to be ultimately more powerful than the underlying biochemical reality of the world itself. This lasts a little while, but ultimately this comes crashing down, and we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it happen all, all around us. Second, one of the things that I think we that emerged with the pandemic that we want to keep keep going is what I call the epidemiological view of society, and that is as we all sort of found ourselves mid-pandemic, looking at our phones and watching lots of charts and and keeping track of statistics about about how close the wolf was to the door and what what the what the future might look like. We all became amateur epidemiologists and trying to understand logics of contagion and this dynamics here as well. And as masks became a more important part of what it meant to be part of society and what it meant to be to participate in society, um, this epidemiological conception of what a society was uh, it makes this possible. And that when I wear a mask and I go out into the world and, and, and I'm seeing other people, I'm imagining myself as a you know as this kind of biological object or entity that is contagious and could do harm whether I mean to do harm or not, and as we begin to sort of understand ourselves as this uh, you know as a population that whose bio uh, whose biological uh, proximity uh, has has importance and has effects beyond the the symbolizations that we that we might have for it. Um, this is a this is an embrace of the real uh, that will also do us do do us good going forward. The third one, uh, and this is the one that got the most that was probably the most controversial, to be honest, mm. um, was one in which I I kind of made a bit of a pushback against uh, the, the 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 I think now more predominant anti surveillance discourse. Um, you know, Shoshana Zuboff, surveillance capitalism, stuff, stuff like this. And we could talk about that more specifically. But what I was arguing here is that, in fact, I'm not arguing that surveillance is good. What I'm arguing is that the term has been overinflated and it's used to describe too many things, that it's used to describe any way in which a society would, would, would want to sense itself, model itself, and act upon itself deliberately, to compose itself deliberately through the models that it produces based on that sensing, to call all of that surveillance, and therefore a form of pernicious social control as a way of capturing otherwise free individuals into some kind of, uh, into some kind of hard or soft uh, totalitarian, totalitarian gesture. Doesn't it, the pandemic demonstrate many sort of ways in which that just doesn't that just doesn't work? We want it, one of the things that climate science demonstrates is that 
There are other ways that we can produce planetary scale, data-driven models of how the world works that are secular, that are useful, that are confident, that should be driving our politics. And the ways in which we've chosen to use planetary scale computation for advertising, for manipulating people into clicking on stupid things, is not the way we should be using planetary scale computation. We should be using planetary scale computation more like the way we use it for climate science, but using it as a way of un, uh, that would allow societies to sense, model, uh, and act upon themselves uh, deliberately. Yeah, that I, I think is one of the is one of the foundational ideas for what post pandemic politics should be about. Great. Yeah. So I just want to reflect those for our listeners because there's a lot of juicy good stuff there. The first is, yeah, the comparative governance piece and how the technocratic governance on one side versus, you know, the populism, you know, on the other side and that the technocratic governance did better. If you can sense your population better, if you can do a little bit of, well, let's call it surveillance or whatever, and actually, you know, make good actions with respect to science, then that obviously did a lot better versus, and as you note, there's kind of there's this, um, oh, what's the term for us? Yeah, there's a simulcra here in the sense that there's like the the narratives of you know Trump and Bolsonaro and those things. The narratives are powerful and they hit our emotions, but eventually those are just looping on themselves and they eventually have to come in contact with reality, you know. And when it comes yeah. in contact with their biochemical realities, oh wow, just saying the virus is going to go away doesn't actually make it go away. And so having um, the thinking about those two different things is interesting. The second piece and the of- rest of the, the, the implications of that for climate change should be obvious. Mm, yes, that we need to, we can't just say X, Y, Z about climate change. Like we need to connect things back to our biochemical reality. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Re- yeah. Reality bats last. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I like that reality bats last. And the second piece is, yeah, I love this epidemiological view of society. And I just think it's, A, it's part of a form of viewing viewing which is seeing like a state yeah. is a great way to view like being able to see like a you know an internet platform or being able to see like one of these ai interfaces that we were talking about being able to take the perspective of both yourself as an individual but also as these kind of greater collectives is really powerful and i really like it's mm-hmm. what you said here about it's a reminder of our own physicality and biophysical reality that we are trans, yeah. you know, we're moving through the world and seeing ourselves as just kind of like this biological being connected to all these other biological beings. So it's again, this connection back to the real. I also think that. Yeah. And, 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 seeing, and seeing yourself as part of a population that you are inevitably entangled with, right? That it's not like, it's, it's not that you're an individual first and then secondarily you enter into this collective. It's like, no, you're actually part of this you're part of the species population to start with. Like that, that is what you are. hundred percent, whether or not there's a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that yeah. move towards, and we could talk more about that, but there's like, yeah, this, uh, this creation of individualism within Western society That's and right. weird societies and how that has been good in a variety of ways, but also is we're seeing the negative manifestations of that as we fail to see, you know, fail to connect rights and duties and to see ourselves as part of a collective. And so I do think that, this epidemiological view will help us see ourselves more of as a in a networked and collectivist sense. Um, and then this third piece that you say here, I super agree that there's and it's a it's just an emotive term here where you take if you think of us um, collecting data about ourselves, that is the kind of 
uh, positive sense of like what is true. And then you can either, you can normativize it and say like, oh, it's surveillance, ooh, evil. Or you can say, oh, this is actually just like a, cli- a beautiful tra- climate change model that's helping us understand how transportation works in our city or whatever. And so making sure, do you have like a proposal for a different word there that we wouldn't use instead of surveillance? Like if it's not surveillance, it's the sensing, it's, the, what's, the, I call it, I call it the sensing layer. It's basically just the way in which a society is able to sense what's going on within itself. But, but, and that would include, you know, not just like super fancy chips from smart city infomercials. It would also include, it would also include, you know, having enough nurses that you can equitably and inclusively provide medical care to the entire population so that those people can put a thermometer on someone and say, okay, this is a point where we need to care for someone. You know, it, it, there's also this dichotomy between, uh, you know, between a high touch uh, care, uh, the provision of social care versus a high tech. Uh, I, I don't believe in this dichotomy. I think it, you need both of these as well. So that sensing layer is, is, is it, it would be my term. Yeah, great. That makes sense. I, I like that. Um, and I think, yeah, so so to conclude here, uh, the the whole podcast is, um, we're going to get in wrap-up mode. I think, A, at the beginning, we talked about the stack and kind of how you view society, which is in this like tech society loop thing where it's like, hey, we have this new technology. It's drastically changing how we view ourselves and we can kind of positively shape that if we understand it. And so trying to understand it is a lot of your work. And The Stack is a great book um, that I recommend for readers. I've read it. It's quite good, especially if you're interested in, in just understanding an abstract perspective, how these kinds of systems co-evolve with each other and how, you know, um, computers co-evolve with humans. It's a, it's a good, uh, good read. And then second, we talked about your current work with the Stralka Institute and, you know, these terraforming programs. And it's November 10th is when folks have to apply for this next one. Um, and I'll add this to the, the show notes, but if you go to the terraforming, um, dot Strelka, that's S T R E L K A.com, then you can check that out. Um, or just, you know, Google Ben and you'll, you'll find it. And so he's apply by November 10th. If you're excited by thinking about how geotechnologies shape geopolitics and vice versa. Um, and then finally we chat about quarantine urbanism here and, and COVID and some of the learnings. And I guess that there will be a book coming out about the real, you know, how we, we need the revenge, to, yeah, to the revenge of the real, this is called the revenge of the real post pandemic politics. Yeah. Exactly. Beautiful. Um, anything else you want to say there, Ben? Any place that people can find you on the internet? Yeah. Th- no. Sure. I, I very much appreciate the chance to to speak with your speak with your listeners and cover so much ground. I, I, I for those of you who might be a little also more interested in some of the work, the more applied work that we're doing through the terraforming program. That that URL that Reese mentioned, the the terraforming all one word dot strelka s t r e l k a dot com is also where you'll find. Uh, a copy of a short book I wrote called The Terraforming, which is a kind of, it's it's about 30,000 words or so, but it's sort of, a, in a way, a kind of design brief or manifesto for this initiative. It's free to download. Go ahead and have, have at it. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, being being in touch with, with your listeners in the future. Yeah, great. Um, well, thank you again for coming today, Ben, and don't, hope you, all the listeners, enjoy this episode. Goodbye, everybody. At the end of an episode, I like to give my own thoughts about that episode, and here are my thoughts. I have three main thoughts. The first is this idea of being a social theorist and that Ben talks about tech being ahead of the concepts that we have of it. 
I think that's a brilliant way to talk about our current situation in society, which is that most of the time, our concepts and our models of reality are fit with reality itself. But during some intense periods of upheaval, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, information revolution, the model that produced our reality is no longer the same model. Either our sensing changes what we can understand about ourselves or this new technologies that we have just change ourselves and change the model so deeply that our models of reality have to change and our understandings have to change. And yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And, you know, for Ben, I think that this idea that, you know, I think connecting it back to, you know, as he says with the stack and our planetary scale computation, that those things, and, you know, in the internet, those disrupt Westphalian geography and create new geographies in its own image. And I think that hits the two crucial pieces here, which is that the internet is both changing our understanding, our current, you know, old models, industrial age models of the nation state. And you can see that in small ways with something like how Facebook was part of the Arab Spring or how surveillance is part of, you know, Hong Kong's struggle for independence. And that our systems of, you know, our nation state style systems are going to be continually rocked by <laughs> this, these new digital technologies. And then on the other side, it's like, you know, creating new geographies in its own image. A lot of those geographies we see just on the internet, like subreddits or QAnon conspiracy theorists or things like that. And there's also new geographies that show up in reality. And so this is when you have a, you know, Bitcoin meetup group that meets at the local bar or when you have, you know, San Francisco as a entity kind of show up in this massive way just like how, you know, London or New York City showed up in the past. So I think that this idea that tech is ahead of our concepts is a crucial one. And I like the idea. And I think it's there's so much juicy space to explore. Just like, you know, as Ben was saying in the show, Marxism and positivism and all these cool ideas showed up in the industrial age as a response to our industrial moment and, and the changes that that wrought on society. So too is there so much, you know, amazing untapped space for new kinds of social theory and models of our ability to understand ourselves in the information age. Okay, that's point one. Point two is, you know, this differentiation that Ben gives between the surveillance layer and a sensing layer. And I really like this because we have this negative instinct towards surveillance especially for me coming more from a cryptocurrency world, it's like surveillance is evil, you know, whether it's surveillance authoritarianism from nation states or surveillance capitalism with companies, that's like bad, you know? But actually, the act of trying to sense our reality, you know, do sense-making, do epistemology, doing that and then using that to, you know, inform good decision-making, that's a good idea, and I, I love the example of climate change as that, where it's like, hey, we actually like it when we surveil our current climate models. <laughs> and we don't call that surveillance, we call it modeling. But it's, they're the same thing. It's just whether you're, you know, modeling and getting data and sensing the earth, you know, in, in biological, non-human biological systems, or whether it's human systems. 
And I think that there is a, and I do want to say I love uh, this line from Ben where he says, the concept of climate change itself is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. That's so true. Like we have the fact that we can look and see all these models and look at Google Earth and see smoke models and all these things, that is a sign that we can surveil the Earth at this global level really well. And I do think there's this huge opportunity, though, for a new kind of surveillance that is not authoritarian and it's not you know deeply capitalist or what have you, but it is instead adding to our societal sensing layers. And I don't know what the word for that is. Ben provided the word, you know, a sensing layer, but I don't think that's good enough. You know, there's, you know, this word sous-valence, sous-valence, which means, you know, bottom-up surveillance, something like, you know, the smartphones taking images and videos of the George Floyd killing. That's an example of our ability as society to kind of point all of our technological tools onto bad things and or good things and show, hey, these are happening, let's deal with them. And those are happening in this, you know, more bottom-up way. And so I think there's some term here or some kind of movement that allows us to surveil ourselves, but in a delightful, delightful, in a powerful bottom-up way. So I think there's a lot of uh, juiciness there. My final third point is kind of a meta point around how folks like Ben and other social theorists should interact with the builders of the world. And this is a more general question between academia and industry. And Ben exists at this intersection to some extent, but you know, if we think about this idea that, hey, we should have this, you know, the sensing layer. We shouldn't just have we shouldn't break things down into surveillance and say, ah, that's evil. How do we actually build out something like that sensing layer? How does that go from an idea to, you know, or, or a book or something like that to being implemented? or invested in by venture capitalists or funded by grants and civic technology? You know, how do we take this architecture as design discipline idea and really push the building and design side? And I don't know the right answer to that. I think it's an information logistics problem. And I think that, yeah, I think, I think that that is obviously a, a juicy area of exploration as well. So that, yeah, I think this is a good a good episode. It's cool to hear Ben coming from very similar angles that I come at problems with, but for him, it's coming with a much more academic angle and an angle steeped in in architecture and you know philosophy and kind of more more readings. So I think I think that that's powerful. Okay, have a good week. Goodbye.